to On the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast on the big stories unfolding in the region. My name is Amran Zaman, and today's guest is Hamid Reza Azizi, a fellow at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin and an expert on Iran's activities in the Levant. I will be talking to Hamid Reza about Iran's role in Syria, where the United States and Israel have escalated attacks against Iran-backed militias, and where Turkey is threatening to mount yet another major incursion against the Syrian Kurds. Is Iran trying to establish a Shia crescent stretching across Iraq and Syria all the way to Lebanon? And how does this affect ongoing efforts to revive the Iran nuclear deal? Welcome to our program, Hamid Reza. It's so wonderful to have you here today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure uh, to be on this podcast. So we're going to be talking about uh, Iran's role in Syria, and you're the big expert on this topic. Can you tell us exactly what Iran's role in Syria is? Can you explain the relationship between Iran and the government of Bashar Assad? And obviously, the relationship predates that. You also had a close relationship between Bashar's father, Hafiz, and Iran. What underpins it? What are the dynamics that inform this relationship? Why is Syria important for Iran? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, uh, looking at uh, Iran-Syria relations and uh, Syria's importance for Iran, uh, basically so important uh, that it prompted uh, Iran's direct intervention in Syria, which, still, which is still ongoing after more than a decade. Uh, we basically need to look at two sets of factors, geopolitical and ideological uh, factors, I think. So uh, the first set of factors, uh, geopolitical ones, is related to what you just mentioned uh, in terms of, uh, you know, somehow the history of relations between uh, Iran and Syria, which uh, dates back to at the current form in terms of a close partnership and then alliance, dates back to the early years after the uh, Islamic revolution in Iran. So uh, basically, uh, you know, looking at the Middle East, Iran sees or has, has been seeing basically Syria as its main or the only, better to say, Arab ally uh, while, uh, you know, uh, others have uh, had, uh, you know, basically uh, different views, uh, usually negative views when it comes to the Islamic Republic as the, as the uh, uh, government, more specifically speaking. Uh, so in that sense, uh, Syria has been important to Iran, and uh, especially during the eight years of war with Iraq in the 1980s, Syria was the only Arab state. Uh, which uh, took side with Iran and prevented the formation of a kind of unified uh, Arab front uh, against Iran. Uh, so that was kind of the foundation of uh, Iran's uh, basically uh, alliance with, uh, with Syria. And also, you know, it is very important what we see today as Iran's network of non-state allies or partners or proxies, whatever we call them, uh, I'm not going to go into the conceptual uh, discussion of that, but uh, Again, the cornerstone of that network was uh, kind of uh, set in Syria or through Syria, 
which was a serious role in uh, you know, uh, the establishment of Hezbollah in Lebanon in the 1980s and also the Islamic Jihad as uh, the main uh, uh, two main elements of uh, Iran's, uh, Iran's network. So in that sense, Syria has been very important to, uh, to Iran. After 2003, uh, the fall of Saddam, um, Syria became even more important in that sense, uh, in the sense of Iran's access to its uh, 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 non-state allies uh, in Lebanon, uh, because Syria basically acted as a, a bridge uh, connecting uh, Iran through Iraq uh, to uh, to Lebanon. So in that sense, you know, uh, when we look back to the events in 2011 and uh, following the Arab Spring, when uh, Assad's uh, very uh, survival was uh, was at stake, um, it was uh, also a lot at stake uh, for Iran in terms of uh, the geopolitical advantages that uh, it, it might uh, lose, you know, in case okay. it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, can I just jump in there um, and ask sure. you why why did Syria support Iran? Why does it support Iran? What binds these two countries? Uh, you know, uh, in the beginning, of course, uh, there was a kind of mutual interest in both cases that I mentioned, uh, in the case of uh, Iraq and also uh, in the case of uh, that uh, non-state network, because uh, you know, uh, regarding Iraq, of course, uh, you know, uh, there was this uh, uh, competition or rivalry between uh, the Ba'ath Party in, uh, in Iraq and Syria and between uh, the person of uh, Saddam and uh, Hafez al-Assad. Uh, so Assad basically uh, was never happy with uh, Saddam trying to play the role as the main leader or, or the great leader uh, of the Arab world. So that kind of intra-competition between Syria, uh, intra-Arab competition between uh, kind of uh, Syria and Iraq uh, hugely contributed to the uh, Syria to Syria's position uh, in uh, Iran-Iraq war. And then, uh, speaking of uh, Hezbollah uh, and, and Palestinian jihad, you know, uh, we need to uh, uh, take into account that uh, before this uh, crisis, uh, before 2011, basically. Uh, Syria was also a very important uh, actor uh, in the domestic in Lebanon's domestic scene, and as we saw in uh, some cases, some very important cases like uh, the assassination of, of Rafi Hariri. Uh, so, in that sense, uh, it was a kind of mutual interest. I mean, supporting Iran's access to Hezbollah would also give Syria a kind of influence. Uh, within that country, which it uh, used to, uh, you know, benefit from for quite a long time. Yeah, but there's also this broader, this perception that um, religion plays a part and the fact that Iran is Shia and that the Assad family is Alawite also, you know, has a role to play. Do you agree with that? And can you explain the difference to us? I mean, we, we don't need to go into any great detail, but just so that our audience understands. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I, uh, first of all, I don't really believe that uh, religion plays a kind of very significant or the main role uh, here. Uh, it's more about uh, geopolitics and also maybe we can uh, also mention uh, down the road the, the role of ideology, which, which I make a distinction here uh, between ideology and religion. But uh, anyway, 
speaking of uh, this uh, so-called Shia connection or Shia crescent, uh, whatever uh, it is called, you know, it's not uh, exactly the way that it's uh, usually depicted because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the very uh, notion that uh, Alawites are uh, or, uh, you know, were basically uh, part of uh, the Shia community since the beginning is, is very disputed. And it's a very uh, known story that, uh, you know, when Hafez al-Assad wanted to become, uh, uh, you know, uh, the president in the country because of the constitution that didn't allow non-Muslims uh, to become uh, presidents and because the Alawites were not uh, recognized, uh, at least in Syria, as, as, as Muslims, he turned to Shias uh, and it was uh, the kind of uh, the Shia marjas uh, or, uh, you know, uh, high clerics that uh, kind of helped him endorse uh, basically Alawism uh, uh, as, as part of Shiism. So this connection actually between Shiism and Alawism is more political than uh, than religious in, uh, to begin with. So, uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons I, um, I said uh, religion doesn't play the main role here. Well, that's such an important point, and thank you for reminding us of that um, factoid about um, how Assad helped, or rather was helped by uh, Iran uh, in getting the presidency. So today, does Iran actually have physical forces on the ground in Syria? Um, there's no uh, uh, re exact report on uh, the number of troops, but uh, that's for sure that Iran does have uh, forces on the ground, uh, mostly in the form of, uh, you know, kind of uh, high-ranking uh, IRGC officers who uh, work uh, at, at the level of, uh, you know, command uh, uh, in terms of uh, coordinating and commanding uh, Iran-backed uh, proxies, uh, both uh, local proxies and uh, those uh, kind of, uh, I would say, imported proxies, uh, Afghan and Pakistani forces of the Fatimian and Zainabian forces. There was a time when uh, Iran uh, had a kind of more extensive uh, a presence on the ground uh, in the uh, early years after uh, the outbreak of the war, but now uh, it's, as I said, um, kind of reduced to uh, a command uh, and control, basically. Yet, you, you just reminded us that religion does somehow have a role in all of this because those Afghans and Pakistanis uh, decided to uh, defend the Assad regime because they somehow see it as protecting them, correct? Uh, yes, uh, that's correct. Uh, the thing is that, you know, this whole, uh, you know, uh, those Afghan and Pakistani brigades and also uh, the Iranian, uh, those volunteer forces who uh, were organized and dispatched by IRGC, they are officially called in Iran as defenders uh, of the shrines, which refers to the shrines of uh, the <clears throat> Shia uh, you know, uh, figures. Uh, but the thing is that uh, even in the case of uh, the Afghans and Pakistanis, uh, religion uh, was not the only factor because, uh, you know, I mean, of course, for many of them, especially those who were uh, recruited in the early stages of uh, the ISIS uh, kind of uh, rule in, in Syria and Iraq, religion did play a role, but the more extensive mobilization that happened uh, in Iran and by Iran 
uh, was also uh, motivated on the uh, parts of the uh, of the Afghans, especially by uh, financial incentives, because uh, you know many of them were those who had uh, lived in Iran uh, since uh, 1990s, since the first uh, uh, rule of, of Taliban in Afghanistan. They had uh, fled to Iran, but they didn't enjoy uh, you know kind of uh, suitable uh, like uh, living uh, conditions. So uh, going there. Uh, getting some money, uh, as was promised uh, by the IRGC, that was one of the ways that they could uh, also, you know, make a change in, in their living. So, uh, again, we need to uh, we need to be careful in, in uh, kind of calling all of them as uh, religiously uh, oriented, basically, or motivated. We hear that uh, Iran is engaged in a very active campaign to convert Sunnis, especially in Derezor to Shia Islam. Is that true? Is that really happening and why? Uh, there is a kind of, uh, there's a lot of reports about that. So I think uh, the main, uh, the actual trend uh, is happening. There's no doubt about that. But uh, again, with regard to the extent, uh, there's uh, no uh, real certainty. But the thing is that, uh, you know, Again, of course, I, I know I'm uh, emphasizing uh, maybe uh, too much on the role of geopolitics, but that's, that's the reality, you know. Uh, for Iran, uh, in Deir Azur especially, that's good that you mentioned it. Uh, that's about uh, the whole campaign uh, with regard to Shiism, the whole, uh, you know, establishment of, of uh, you know, armed uh, kind of uh, uh, armed depots, etc., all are related to Iran trying to establish a zone of influence uh, for itself uh, in uh, in Syria. It's more or less like uh, what Turkey is doing in northern Syria, what Russia has been doing in terms of uh, in the areas under its control, and also uh, in big cities like Damascus in terms of you know uh, kind of uh, establishing uh, Russian uh, Russian language schools. But Iran, of course, it. Uh, is doing it in its own way, uh, the more ideologically driven. But it's about, to my understanding, it's it's about uh, building a loyal social base uh, in a very in a very uh, important uh, part of, of Syria geopolitically, uh, which is the Azur. So it's not uh, a kind of messianic uh, understanding of uh, you know the necessity of spreading Shiism in uh, to other areas. It's about uh, as I said, uh, creating a social base that could be relied on uh, in the future if something goes uh, to a kind of unfavorable uh, direction uh, for Iran in terms of, for example, the future of uh, political uh, process in Syria, uh, the future of governance in general in terms of potential federalism, whatever. In those cases, having a zone of influence is very important. And that's what Iran is doing in there. Well, of course, a lot depends also on how things go in Iraq, because obviously that's the bridge. There's no uh, physical border between Iran and Syria. You mentioned Russia and Turkey, the other two big actors in Syria. And along with Iran, they've sort of tried to compartmentalize their differences and advance their mutual interests in Syria under this thing called the Astana process. Where are we now with that? And do you think that the common interests continue to outweigh 
the differences? Or are we seeing a growing friction between these individual uh, actors? Uh, to me, uh, the Asana process has uh, lost uh, its, uh, its meaning and function uh, for uh, quite some time now, because you know, it was uh, basically established as, uh, as a mechanism uh, to de-escalate tensions between the three actors and, of course, uh, between the sides that each of those uh, three actors were, uh, were supporting. But, uh, you know, and at some point it was uh, kind of uh, successful in uh, reducing tensions in the specific parts of, of the country. But then, as it was more or less also clear since the beginning, uh, Russia, Iran, and uh, of course uh, the Syrian government used it as a pretext uh, to go step by step towards uh, kind of uh, you know establishing their control uh, all around the country. So in that sense, Astana's Astana has lost its meaning. But um, as I can see now, uh, the three countries, especially Iran and Russia, are trying to give it. New meaning uh, because uh, what we saw in the latest uh, Tehran summits of Erdogan, uh, Putin, and uh, Raisi, uh, and also you know uh, what was mentioned by Irina Supreme Leader Khamenei, uh, it's like uh, they want depicted again, especially uh, Iran and Russia. For Turkey, is more like a matter of uh, maneuvering, I think. But these two countries want to uh, show it as a kind of uh, non-Western or uh, even anti-Western uh, grouping. But uh, this, uh, this, this wider geopolitical context aside, in Syria itself, uh, things are much more complicated, especially between uh, Iran and Turkey. For Iran and Russia, of course, there was a time when uh, you know, competition uh, started to rise. Uh, because uh, the main common goal, which was to establish Assad's rule and uh, kind of uh, to uh, defeat the ISIS, etc., those things that would bind Russia and Iran together, they went away and Russia and Iran started to compete. But then since the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, we can see somehow a new era of co coordination and cooperation, I think, between Russia and Iran, because of course, Russia doesn't have, have, have the uh, capacity to be actively engaged in both uh, fronts. This doesn't mean that Iran is going to take Russia's place, but uh, that means, as I said, a kind of more active role by, by Iran. And briefly about Turkey, I think, uh, you know, they were, I mean, Iran and Turkey used to compartmentalize, of course, their uh, differences in Syria, despite taking different sides. But that was the case until 2020, when uh, the Iran-backed forces for the first time uh, went into a kind of uh, direct clash uh, with Turkey. And, uh, you know, before that, the two sides basically kind of recognized their zones of influence. Then. Uh, the presence of Iran-backed forces and the clashes that erupted somehow changed the calculations of, of the both sides. On the one hand, Turkey is concerned that Iran uh, is going to kind of spread its proxy groups toward the Turkish borders. And also, uh, it's also concerned about Iran's ties uh, with, uh, with uh, the Kurdish uh, uh, or some elements of the Kurdish uh, uh, militias in Syria. On Particularly hand, around Afrin, right? There's a, yeah, exactly, exactly. a lot of That's talk right. about cooperation yeah. between the Iran-backed militias and uh, the PKK offshoot, yes. the Afrin Liberation Front, I believe it's called. 
that's fighting yes, yes, Turkey exactly. and its proxies. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. And then on the other side, Iran is worried that uh, you know Turkey uh, is going to uh, kind of is is looking for an opportunity actually to uh, to get more, and uh, it's not going to leave the areas uh, which has uh, you know been taken under its control uh, over the past few years. And this doesn't mean that. Uh, Assad's rule is not going to be uh, as complete as at least expected by Iran. So these okay, are the main so points of contentions. Let me then jump in with another question. Now, we know that Turkey is kind of exploring the possibility of some kind of normalization, for the lack of a better term, with the Assad regime. And this is definitely something that the Kremlin is encouraging. How does Iran feel about this? Because you say that Iran, you know, views Syria as its own zone of influence and obviously would not want Turkey, therefore, to expand its influence any further through um, making up with Assad. Is that correct? Or does it sort of think, well, that's not such a terrible thing after all, because if this does happen, then that just makes... Assad's position that more secure? It's both to some extent. And that was the case also about uh, the Arab normalization or GCC normalization with, uh, with, with Assad. Uh, of course, it's been limited uh, to UAE so far. But uh, these kinds of normalizations, if we may say, uh, faces Iran with a dilemma. On the one side, as you mentioned, you know, it's good because it would bring Assad more international acceptance and legitimacy. Uh, but on the other hand, it means, uh, in the case of GCC, of course, uh, more rivals, especially in the uh, economic field. In the case of Turkey, a uh, kind of a complicated situation because, uh, you know, on the one hand, Turkey is there. On the, uh, on the other hand, Russia is pushing uh, the two sides toward the kind of uh, accepting the status quo, as it seems. So Iran is taking, basically, when it comes to Turkey, Iran supports Assad's position that any kind of meaningful normalization could happen only if uh, Turkey leaves uh, Syria and cede the control of those areas back to, uh, to, to the uh, Assad regime. And that was the reason, I think, why uh, Erdogan, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, praised uh, Russia's position, but then uh, said something like, uh, we couldn't reach an understanding on the matter with, uh, with Iran, if I remember correctly. Uh, so that's how I see uh, Iran's position with regard to that, not objecting, but at the same time, you know, calculating the risks and challenges. As well. So as you say, it's terribly com complex because, you know, on the one hand, Iran sees it in its interest to support the Kurds against Turkey in certain circumstances. We see this playing out in Sinjar and Shengal in, in Iraq, um, and to some extent, as we mentioned before, in Afrin. Yet, at the end of the day, these two countries share a common fear of the Kurds, Kurdish irredentism, and have been known to cooperate against them. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, that's right. And, uh, you know, when it comes to Syria and the Syrian courts, uh, Iran's support for the Syrian courts is more related to the U.S., uh, not to Turkey. So uh, that's very important to, uh, to, to consider because, uh, you know, for Iran, basically opposing uh, Turkish uh, operations and also uh, cooperating with the courts has more to do 
with uh, an attempt to distance the courts uh, uh, from the United States and kind of undermine uh, the U.S. position there. In that sense, I would say Iran's relationship with the Syrian courts is more tactical than strategic and more opportunistic than, uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of long term. Otherwise, of course, as you said, uh, there's a there's a lot of cooperation, and just, it was just recently that uh, one of these uh, you know uh, Kurdish militia commanders uh, was killed by Turkey in Syria. Yes, somebody and, uh, I, yeah. I actually interviewed him in Kandil uh, on the Iranian border some years ago in 2015. Yeah. Yeah, I see. So then, yeah, of course, you know, that that's one of the uh, examples of, of this cooperation. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, Iran and Turkey understand each other's geopolitical concerns uh, very well, but they cannot help but to continue this competition as well, because both are, uh, you know, uh, regional powers with, uh, I would say, uh, extra regional ambitions. And uh, for that reason, uh, this uh, competition over zones of influence in Iraq, in Syria, in other places continue, while at the same time they try not to open the door, uh, not to, sorry, close the door for uh, cooperation when it comes to uh, the issues related to their survival and national security. So on the one hand, you say that Iran, much like Russia, is very keen to see the United States get out of Syria, and you have these periodic attacks on uh, US installations uh, inside Syria, not very successful ones, but still it's a form of harassment. And then of course the US retaliates. Um, how does that chime with the uh, effort to revive the nuclear deal? Um, I think that's also uh, one of the very interesting areas that, uh, you know, there's an agreement on uh, the Iranian side and the US side to compartmentalize the issues, because uh, that was very interesting to me hearing uh, the US officials uh, saying just a few days ago when this uh, new uh, escalation, new wave of escalation happened between Iran-backed uh, groups and, and the US in Syria that, uh, you know, this has nothing to do with the JCPOA. And for Iran, uh, although not declaring that, but then uh, th that's quite, uh, quite the same because uh, the, the very idea behind uh, the current administration and the Iranian government in general's uh, like uh, involvement in talks with the United States is to uh, find a solution for the JCPOA and they have been quite, for the nuclear issue, sorry. And they have been quite clear on that, that's, you know, that's not going to affect any other uh, element of uh, Iran's uh, regional policy. And to some extent, it seems that the United States has also come to, uh, you know, accept the fact that, you know, there is little way to actually, uh, you know, address these issues uh, together in one uh, single format. So the United States also tries to uh, stand firm or show firmness at least against Iran-backed groups as it did uh, in, in responding to the uh, uh, Iran-backed groups provocations, uh, but at the same time, both are uh, talking with each other. So I really don't see any uh, you know, serious uh, kind of negative implication for uh, the nuclear issue, if it's going to reach a successful uh, conclusion at all, which is I'm not uh, very optimistic about. You're not optimistic. Well, Israel would be pleased if your uh, pessimism proved uh, to be uh, well-placed. Um, and Israel is also, of course, 
constantly attacking Iranian assets inside Syria. Is, I mean, do you detect any change though in Russia's sort of tolerance of those attacks because of Israel's position on the Ukraine conflict? Uh, what I can see is Russia um, kind of uh, sitting aside, uh, just doing nothing, uh, looking what's uh, happening between Iran and Israel. Because before that, Russia used to play a kind of uh, play the role as a, a, of a de-escalator, I would say, uh, by uh, initiatives like uh, you know reaching an agreement with uh, Jordan and 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 Israel. Uh, to limit uh, the uh, scope of uh, Iran and Iran-backed groups' activities in Syria and things like that. But now that uh, the Ukraine crisis, as I said, has reduced the capacity of Russia's involvement in Syria, and on the other hand, there are frictions between, or there have been frictions between uh, Russia and Israel. Uh, so uh, what Russia is doing is to just, uh, you know, uh, not do anything. Russia is not... Uh, 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 doesn't seem at least uh, determined yet to take action against Israel because uh, of its own uh, calculations and, and uh, the very fact that it doesn't want Israel's involvement in supporting Ukraine to be uh, to go beyond a certain extent, of course. Uh, but then this is uh, very uh, dangerous, I think, Russia uh, sitting aside because, you know, we've seen a kind of actually increase, not decrease, in the level of Israeli attacks and the scope of them uh, uh, in, in the past uh, few months since the, uh, uh, since the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And on the other side, I think Iranian, uh, the Iranian side is getting uh, more determined based on the narrative that I can follow on the Iranian side that, you know, there's a need to show a firm response at some point, especially if uh, the JCPOA talks fail, I think, Iran will do uh, some, I mean, Iran is expected at least to do some bold attack, uh, bold move, uh, sorry, uh, against uh, uh, Israel uh, in Syria in response to, uh, to, to those attacks. And so would that play out in Lebanon, you think? Uh, it would involve uh, many parts of the region. Uh, I think any kind of Iran-Israeli uh, escalation would involve uh, uh, other countries, even uh, GCC countries like the UAE, who has been uh, uh, trying to mend fences uh, with Iran. Uh, if uh, that, that escalation happens, and if it goes beyond a certain extent, I think uh, that won't be uh, limited to Syria and other uh, countries would uh, you know, be uh, somehow involved. And that's the reason why, although I'm not optimistic, uh, I still hope that uh, some you know, uh, good outcome would uh, come out of the negotiation. Well, let's hope, yes, let's hope that something good comes of it all. Uh, thank you so very much for being with us today. That was a fascinating conversation and we look forward to reading more of your exceptional work Hamid Reza thank you thank you very much it was uh, very nice uh, talking to you and uh, being on the show Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. 
Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis. And this brings us to the end of this week's On the Middle East. Thank you for tuning in. Goodbye.